Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest is a fellow cage head, a friend of the pod, and a friend to me personally. Welcome, Liz Nolan. How's it going, Liz? Great. We're thrilled to have you here. You're a, a big supporter of the show, and you're always chiming in with these great horror recommendations for me. And Today's movie is no exception. This was one that I had not seen, but that you brought to my attention. And it's a really great one. But before we get into the actual movie, why don't you tell us a little bit about sort of your history with horror, how you got into it, all that jazz. Uh, I would describe my history with horror as uh, a love-hate relationship. <laughs> you know, I, I love to be scared, I guess. Although when I think about it, I'll be like, oh, I don't want to see that movie. I don't want to see that movie. But then, <laughs> you know, when you start watching it, it's really fun. It's a real big adrenaline rush uh, since I was a young age. I'd be watching the late night movies on HBO, Freddy Krueger, uh, you know, Jason, all those things that kept me up at night. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's one of those things we become accustomed to a lot of things and don't, you don't get too many thrills in life these days. But, you know, I still get scared by movies. Exactly. And I think that there really is something to that where if you like, if you think about a horror movie too much, you like kind of get in your head about it. And mm -hmm. what you expect is always way worse than what's actually on the screen. But it's so funny how... Even all these years later, I'm the same way, where like I can psych myself out on a movie and be like, no, I'm actually going to wait to watch that one. <laughs> and what other kind of movie stays in your mind so much after you watch it? None. No, none other movies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is there a subgenre that you tend to enjoy more than, uh, more than others? Well, I think I really do like, um, besides the slasher and hacker movies, which are fun, I think I really love to watch vampire movies. Yeah, they're sexy as hell. Vampires are great. Um, <laughs> I think it's, although interestingly, the vampire movie that we're talking about today, not a sexy vampire, but no. I, I'm curious what you think then about like sort of the evolution of vampires from sort of this very animalistic sort of Nosferatu type thing into the sort of suave and debonair uh, Dracula that came about from the 30s. Yeah, well, I believe, yeah, in the book, yeah, he's not described as being very sexy, right? But that's right. probably what sells, Yeah, you know, and they didn't even have talking back then. So they're probably just were trying to push the ticket sales. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's fine. I mean, that's okay with me. I mean, I don't mind the sexy vampire so much because it kind of actually makes them a little bit scarier because they look inviting, right? Yeah, they lure you, know, you in. They charm you. They have, uh, you know, they're glamoring. They convince you. So, I mean, that in its own way. It's a little bit more scary. Yeah, it kind of reinterprets that glamoring that they do into sort of like a physical embodiment of that, as in like they just kind of put you off your guard and uh, put you at ease. I, I think that that is pretty interesting, although it does seem like it at some point got taken to its extreme. And now <laughs> I think that got too should far. Go, yeah, it went too far. <laughs> we had to go back. Yeah. And uh, I, I'm I would be very interested in getting some more like animalistic vampire movies. I know there was um, Thirty Days of Night. I think is is animalistic vampires, and uh, I Am Legend. They're like technically vampires, I guess. But I think yeah, Twilight kind of lost us some goodwill. Yeah. <laughs> the vampires <laughs> some goodwill, and people are a little bit burned out on it now because remember it was like Twilight. And remember also there was True Blood, right? The TV show on HBO, which ran for what? Classic. A million seasons. I love a that million show. seasons. I watched many of them. This <laughs> read, was even before I was into horror, but I had a huge oh, crush on Anna Paquin. <laughs> I read like eight of the books. I mean, I I was really into it, but yeah. So I think it's kind of like their day is done, done a little bit. Their night is done. <laughs> 
<laughs> but they're primed for a comeback, as you said. Yeah, I think they are primed <laughs> for a comeback. But uh, the movie that we're talking about is it falls kind of before that revival that right. vampires had. It was kind of a predecessor to the comeback, as it were. Um, we're talking about 2000s fascinating and creepy alternate history horror movie, Shadow of the Vampire. Really, really cool stuff. This movie is sort of a behind-the-scenes look. Listeners, I'm doing heavy air quotes here. (laughs) At the filming of W.F. Murnau's Nosferatu, which is, of course, a landmark film from 1922 in both the German Expressionist movement as well as vampire movies and horror at large. Uh, This movie, Shadow of the Vampire, takes a lot of influence from an urban legend in the early 20s that the main reason that Nosferatu was so good was because Max Schreck himself was actually a vampire. I said something interesting. I did a Google search on it. You know, I was thinking, when I saw this in 2000, there was no, like, there was Google, but I wasn't online. And I couldn't look this up. And I was scared about it for years, wondering, you know, was he a vampire? So I, (laughs) well, now I Googled it. And, you know, they say he's not a vampire, but uh, did you know the name, the word Shrek? actually means terror in German. <laughs> I uh, I did not know that. And <laughs> it really, uh, it, it puts the Mike Myers character in a new light. Oh, I know. And I didn't even think uh. about that one. So then <laughs> was this guy, did he only do horror stuff? Is that why he picked that name? Or, you know, was he really a vampire? <laughs> wow. Who know- You know what? This is what <laughs> the movie hopes to answer. <laughs> we will never know because, you know, there's stuff written on Wikipedia and whatever, but these people are dead and gone. I mean, who knows exactly. if that's even the truth? <laughs> I mean, yeah, this is everything that you read is just somebody's opinion. You about cannot it. believe everything you see online. Don't we know that now? <laughs> exactly. I don't know. <laughs> you got to look deeper, folks. Do your own research. The truth <laughs> is out there. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Max Shrek was a vampire. You heard it here first. That's right. I'm I'm curious if you've seen the original Nosferatu that this movie is uh, relies so heavily upon. I watched it uh, some years ago. I had a copy, probably like a VHS tape, something of it, and it's pretty scary. Yeah. See, that's the thing is that I think that um, <clears throat> it is impressively still creepy like there's something very otherworldly about his movements and everything um that is recreated in this movie really effectively um that just kind of puts you off balance a little bit um it's 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 off-putting in a really good way right definitely it's very scary um, and I won't get too far into the original, uh, the original Nosferatu because I do suspect that it may someday get chosen for this show. I do think mm-hmm. that it's a really good movie, but there is some interesting background that I think does lend a little bit of context to this movie in that Bram Stoker's heirs were very litigious and uh, Nosferatu was almost lost to time basically because it was like an unofficial adaptation. Like, obviously, the names are changed, and he's Count Orlock instead of Count <laughs> Dracula, and you know. But it's it's very much just like a reskinned version of of Dracula. Obviously, everyone knows this, and so Bram Stoker's heirs sued W. F. Murnau and the studio, and basically they had to destroy like all the copies that they could get their hands on. Did it ever and- get released in the theater? It so it did, and it okay. like they were they had this huge struggle, and it it was it was in theaters, 
and it went out onto onto like home, the equivalent of home home release, I guess, where like people had like the reels of it. And yeah, they they like put out a call and they like had them all gathered up and destroyed. So there you go, folks. It's important to archive things. You know, this is what I'm always saying. <laughs> uh, kind of a, an interesting irony, I thought, that the movie was almost lost to time for this uh, supposedly immortal creature. Um, but I do recommend the original Nosferatu. I think it's excellent. I think it is one of my preferred silent films over Metropolis and the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. So uh, George says, check it out. <laughs> This movie, however, was written by Stephen Katz and directed by uh, E. Elias Marriage, both of whom who have done a few other things, but this is pretty much what they're known for. Although uh, Marriage has made a name for himself in certain circles thanks to his experimental movie, Begotten, which patrons can listen to an episode about this very moment. On the Patreon? Yeah, the Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash Little Horror PHL. What, what? <laughs> um, but it is really interesting, and that movie was basically what got marriage this job. Nick Cage is, yeah, so it's appropriate that another huge Nick Cage fan chose this one to talk about, because this is the very first movie Produced by the man himself, Nick Cage, um, and his company, Saturn Films. So that's cool. Good job, Nick. Right. And um, did you see that Nick Cage originally wanted to play the role? Man, what a different <laughs> movie that would be. <laughs> <laughs> we got a little glimpse of it in uh, Vampire's Kiss. Exactly. Very good movie as well. So maybe he thought he had already done that. <laughs> But then um, I was—I saw this little tidbit about it was uh, originally to be titled "Burned to Light," and it says in a reference to filmmaking process mm-hmm. and in uh, the vampire's ultimate fate in the film. The title change came about because apparently some people, including Willem Dafoe, misread the title as "Burn Ed to Light." <laughs> Watch out, Ed! <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's like a scene out of a, a screwball comedy. <laughs> Burn Ed to light. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. Third base. <laughs> <laughs> I think Shadow of the Vampire is a better name than, than Burn, Burn to light. light. Yeah, because I wouldn't get that, what they meant to intend to do with that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that Shadow of the Vampire, you know, you get the idea of, like, the the projection being like being a, a shadow. It all, it all still works as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> it's a scarier name. <laughs> Yeah, and yeah, it lets you know that you're in for vampires. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so Willem Dafoe basically said that he was interested in the movie, though, after reading the script. And so uh, Nick Cage graciously stepped aside. Ever the gentleman. Always the gentleman. <laughs> Bless you, Nick. <laughs> in addition to Willem Dafoe, though, it also stars John Malkovich as Murnau. And uh, Udo Kier is in it. And Eddie Izzard is in it, too. And they both have great roles. I think that was my first time ever seeing Eddie Izzard when I saw that movie. They're she, right? Yeah. I believe so. Yeah. uh, She's great and uh, very funny. And I think that this role works because she has that sense of humor. Right. Yeah. And there's a little bit of like absurdity to this movie, to like taking this real life story and being like, but he's a vampire. Right. And (laughs) I think that that background in comedy really does help her be the straight person for this absurdity in a really great way. 
Right. Definitely. I agree. Like he's kind of in on it as we find out a little bit in the movie, but I mean, nobody really knows. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say that in addition to the whole concept of like, what if Max Shrek was actually a vampire being a Liberty taken for the sake of the movie, it also does play uh, pretty loose with historical accuracy in terms of obviously the fate of several right. of the characters. <laughs> well, I mean, we'll get to that, but in uh, in addition to that, even their characterization is like not necessarily reflective of who they were in the case of Murnau in particular. And, you know, we can discuss these changes as they come up, but as far as I'm concerned, I'm not really that hung up on the historical a- accuracy of this because it's not, it's not really claiming to serve as a historical document. It's just supposed to be an entertaining movie. I'm curious what you think about that. Oh, definitely. I mean, um, it's a very entertaining movie. It's an alternate history. Uh, you know, it does change some of the personalities or whatever, but that's to make it more entertaining. It's in service to film, which is kind of what the movie is about. You know, uh, how things are more interesting on bringing something from the page. Just forget that. <laughs> no, no, I think you're, you're totally right. I think you're yeah. totally right. But the, yeah, the movie is kind of about bringing things to life through cinema yeah, and making absolutely. them and uh, the choices that you'll make to make it more interesting. Maybe not the truth, but it's more interesting. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that it's funny because nobody is like Abraham Lincoln vampire hunter didn't happen. <laughs> like, this movie kind of gets like hamstrung by its own success because it like it saw a little bit of mainstream acceptance and so people like pushed back on it in a way that I don't think that they would have for other movies. Plus there's a little bit of gravitas lent by the cast in it, I think. Mm, and it's not super fantastical. Yeah, it is pretty ground. I mean, yeah. beyond the fact that there's a vampire, it's pretty grounded in uh realism. But yeah, people agreed. They all thought it was entertaining, too. Willem Dafoe, as Max Shrek, got noticed in particular. He was nominated for an Academy Award for the Best Supporting Actor. He did, unfortunately, lose to Benicio Del Toro in traffic. So, hats off to Benicio. (laughs) Um, And uh, the makeup effects for this were also nominated, but lost to Ron Howard's How the Grinch Stole Christmas. And that's not all right. Yeah, <laughs> that's um that's a choice by the Academy for sure. No, but uh, <laughs> interestingly, even Ebert liked this one, folks. We got one. We got one from him. Uh, <laughs> he he gave it three and a half stars out of four, and he he noted this, and I really really agree with it that the movie succeeds by avoiding irony. This is so huge to me because don't get me wrong i mean you and i irony is great we love hollywood (laughs) handbook (laughs) oh yeah there's no denying that uh there's an element of irony that i can get behind but i think that the fact that this movie plays it totally straight that there isn't any winking to camera about like isn't it crazy that we're doing this right is so important to this movie there so many slashers now are like we know it's a silly slasher and i I know that you know it's a silly slasher. <laughs> I don't need you to wink at me. I know it's silly. I just want you to be what you are. I'm curious what you think about how this movie avoids irony compared to a lot of other movies that might play in a different way. Right. It plays like a very serious movie. You know, it plays like a, like a film that's telling a story. It's not silly. I mean, there are jokes in it, but it has a very particular mood to it when you're watching it. Almost like you feel like you're 
a spectator, you know, looking through a window, watching these people. It feels almost like it's in real time, you know, like more like a stage show or, or, you know, an old TV show back in the old days. It's very much more slow paced than movies that we see today. I agree with Ebert in that way that it doesn't have any irony. It's not trying to pull any jokes. It's not pulling any fast ones. There's no, you know, sixth sense. You know, I see dead people. Like, he was a vampire the whole time. Like, you know, from the very beginning, we know that something is not right. Yeah, it's very deliberate in that way. We're waiting for the other people to find out that are in the movie. We know. They don't know. And we're watching them find out. So that's what makes it interesting. Not any kind of stunts or anything. Right. And uh, that's also where I think the horror part of it comes from. Because it is sort of like that dread of, like us knowing this that they don't know you know so i guess there is dramatic irony that to this movie but (laughs) um but you know it 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 really works just really well and uh, it went on to recoup its budget the budget was 8 million it went on to make 11.2 million at the box office no sequel (laughs) no no sequel Uh, (laughs) but hey i as far as i'm concerned bring back the mid-budget movie you know, this a nice $8 million movie. You get a few big names. You let some people do an acting showcase. What's not to love? It looks beautiful, I think. I totally agree. I totally agree. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back to the show. As we leave 2020 in the rear view and head into 2021, I think we've all earned a resolution to treat ourselves. And nothing says treat like Tuckins, the inside out all in one s'more. With a crunchy handmade graham cracker covered in decadent chocolate and wrapped inside a fluffy marshmallow on a stick, it'll be love at first taste. And there's all kinds of great flavors that you can mix and match, including original, cookies and cream, peanut butter cup, and even some rad seasonal flavors. Plus, unlike a regular s'more, Tuckins can easily be roasted indoors or out, over the fireplace, the fire pit, even the stovetop will do the trick. And they stay delicious for up to three months in the freezer. So head to Tuckins.com and use the offer code BEST20 to get a whopping 20% off your order, while also letting Tuckins know you heard about them from the Best Little Horror House. That's T-U-C-K-I-N-S.com and BEST20 for 20% off. So make the new year a sweet one with the no mess inside out s'more. And now, back to the show. So to get into the actual movie, it just throws you into this world. The opening credits slowly come up with these like angled sepia patterns, really calls to mind the original Nosferatu and sort of the styles of German expressionism as well as the footlights for a stage because you know you compared it to a a stage production earlier and I think that is very uh, like I said deliberate I think is a great word for it because they there is sort of that theatricality that went hand in hand with silent film because you know they didn't have their vocal intonations or anything so everything had to be larger than life and really actively communicated so there i think that the sort of allusions to stage productions are very much on purpose the artwork begins to fade in and we're just absolutely transported there's some great grain on it i i love it when they take the time to really do like some wonderful opening credits i'm curious if you enjoy these or if you want to just get into the movie no, I loved it. It's really beautiful. I started to really watch it. Did any of the characters look like characters in the movie? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it was, it's, yeah, I really do enjoy that. I don't like when they just, boom, start the movie. I mean, I guess that works in Jason Bourne or whatever. But outside of that, I do appreciate a nice opening title. Let you know what you're in for. It's a little uh, a movie boosh. <laughs> Nailed it. You Nailed got it. it. Wow, <laughs> I hope that catches on and you use this every pot afterwards. So. <laughs> well, that could be your thing. That's it, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And so, 
we open up for real now in Berlin, 1921, communicated to us through a silent film style interstitial card. And like, this is, I, this is incredibly dorky, but I like, it took my breath away. <laughs> Because, like, you're, I'm so used to seeing them all, like, fuzzy and shaky from, like, the restored originals. And, like, it was just so crisp and so, like, aesthetically pleasing to me that I'm like, do I want, like, these interstitial cards to make a comeback like this? It could probably help in a lot of movies. It really could. If they were like, we changed location, we're here now. <laughs> <laughs> all right. That, I'm starting the petition now. Folks, we're going to bring back interstitial title cards. The title card also tells us that W.F. Murnau has been denied permission to make a film adaptation of Dracula, but in the true spirit of innovation, he says, fuck it, and decides to make one anyway. And so he's taking his cast and crew to Czechoslovakia to do just that. Basically, sort of in this grand thematic, he's determined to work on location, despite the cost, crying to heavens about an end to the artifice. And this is very much something that will persist throughout the whole movie. It really sets him up as a very dramatic person. (laughs) (laughs) That is very, very true. And it's, it's really great. I think that, you know, like we said, there is that theatricality, but I like when a movie sets up its themes that early so that we can like absorb it and be like, all right, now this is something I can like look out for going forward. I I like it. We're in for a ride with this guy. (laughs) Yeah, we sure are. (laughs) And uh, not all the crew is pleased about this. In particular, Greta Schroeder, who's the lead actress, is pretty upset about this. And I think that a lot of this conversation between us is just going to be me gushing about the way that this movie is shot. Because, (laughs) like, when she gestures to the film camera off screen and then it just, like, cuts to it in sharp relief by itself for a few seconds, like, it just looks fabulous. Right. And um, that's the time when she said... She wants to do stage because the stage gives her life. Mm. And she goes, and that points to the film camera, takes my life away. And folks, Mm. it just might. (laughs) (laughs) There's a little foreshadowing. (laughs) Uh, Yes, a little foreshadowing indeed. And Murnau is being extremely, extremely cagey with his producer, who is Albin Grau, as played by Udo Kier about who is playing Count Orlock. Like, he's he's refusing to tell him anything about him. And eventually we hear from the lead actor, Gustav von Wangenheim, that Murnau told him that the vampire will be played by German theater character actor Max Schreck, who has been in Czechoslovakia for a few weeks already, immersing himself in the role. Basically, your your Daniel Day-Lewis-type method actor, uh, but for vampires. And yeah, one of the guys goes, Shrek? Is that his real name? <laughs> <laughs> so I guess like, you know, they're German. They knew what we didn't know, that it means terror. Yeah. Ooh, spooky. <laughs> Basically, to this end, Gustav explains, Shrek will only ever appear amongst the casting crew in makeup. He'll only be filmed at night. He'll never break character. He's, he's going to be fully engulfed in the role of Count Orlock. There's a certain level of, like, pretension <laughs> to uh, being a method actor. I know, they're all, like, rolling their eyes. <laughs> <laughs> to be like, I will inhabit the role. I don't know. It's just It just kind of strikes me as amusing sometimes, but uh, uh, Yeah, I wonder how works. common that would have been back then as, as a true concept. Yeah. I wonder if it was more common in, like, stage productions because you... 
would probably be playing the role for longer than you typically do in a movie production, you know, if you're mm. going on tour or something. So, uh, who knows? Maybe maybe it used to be a lot more common. Take the craft more seriously. I don't have that information, folks. Look it up yourself. <laughs> <laughs> a little homework for everyone. They make their way to Czechoslovakia. And as they disembark the train, which is uh, appropriately named the Charon, which is, of course, the guy who leads the souls across the River Styx in Greek mythology, and Gustav notices what appears to be a bottle of blood packaged in among the food supplies. Very suspicious. Ooh, creepy. (laughs) (laughs) They arrive at their, like, remote inn that they're going to be staying in, and Murnau is still very recalcitrant when the crew presses him for information about how the movie is going to be shot. And that evening, the cameraman, Wolfgang Miller, is in like a trance as he shivers in the corner. And this dude, I like, <laughs> I had to literally pause the movie and look it up because he looked like Alan Rickman to a distracting oh, yeah. degree. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> it's not Alan Rickman. It's in fact uh, Ronan Vibert. But Ronan, you look a lot like Alan Rickman. But Murnau delivers a caged ferret in the middle of the night to Shrek, who is still mostly hidden. And this, I think, is really effective. You know, we've kind of gone back and forth on this show in terms of, you know, hiding your your villain or whatever and how early you reveal the person. In uh, the recent The Host episode, we talk about Bong Joon-ho talking about how he likes to reveal the, the character or the villain early on so that you can sort of see how it's affecting the the characters, the rest of the characters in the movie. But I think that it really works in a movie like this to hold back and really let that tension build because it's so focused on him. It's it's almost it's not quite like a character study, but so much of it sort of like just revolves around the way that Max Shrek in quotes, (laughs) sort of uh, navigates this world along with Murnau. Um, And it's, it's, it's just about their reflection of each other, I think. And so having that sort of pieced out instead of an early reveal uh, I think works for me. I'm, I'm curious what you think about it. Yeah, so it's like probably what about a third into the film before we ever see him. Yeah, like thirty minutes. Yeah, yeah. I I agree with you. I think the mood is set. You know, like we know that something's not right. Everybody is suspicious. You know, uh, we get a little taste of it, but we don't fully know. Yeah, I think it's it's good to piece it out a little bit. You know, makes it a little bit more scary that way. The anticipation. Yeah. You know, the the when you finally do see him. You know, it definitely delivers on how scared that you have, and you're not disappointed. So, in that way, I think it works. Right, and I think that it it is also helpful that in this very first shot, you know, he is in shadow, but we do get a little taste. We get like we see his famous like stiff armed walk and the nails. Yeah, and he shuffles up with his little like three inch long fingernails, maybe more. They're they're long as hell. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and he's like making these like weird grunt noises as he grabs the cage. Yeah, he makes a lot um, of weird noises. In the he sh- oh boy, he sure does. Uh, and uh, they're shooting a scene the next morning when the landlady interrupts and she ruins the take and she's very upset about Murnau taking down the crucifixes that littered the inn. And she warns them that they're not just for decoration. <laughs> He's so he 
so mad. He's like, he's so mad. A native has ruined the scene. <laughs> he's pissed. He's real pissed about it. And um, it's a- another moment where it's like very dramatic, but like in the tone of the movie, it totally works. Like it doesn't feel dramatic in that moment when she's like hissing at them, like, oh, it's not just for decoration. And you're like, oh, it's not. <laughs> It sometimes almost feels like an old soap opera. Yeah. Like the way that she pops out. <laughs> it's like, who is this woman? And she's like, she's like a harbinger of the future almost in a way. Mm. And she's ignored. <laughs> and sure one is. of the rules in horror movies when you ignore Famously, a warning. You can't do that. Can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> and that night, Murnau takes them up to the castle to film. And... It's happened already in a few times, including in the scene that the landlady interrupts. But one of the things that I really love about this movie is the way that it sort of effortlessly shifts between modern film techniques and the classic ones, uh, including using the iris lenses for the camera in this scene, especially as we see the action through the camera's eye, sort of transitioning to black and white for these parts, and uh, like the aspect ratio is different and everything. Um, it's just a really cool, fun touch. Right, and they also put makeup on the actors, too, like they would have in those days. So it's interesting to see, like, in the new version our, our time version of the movie that you can see there's heavily made up and uh, it just looks totally different when it's which is the black and white part yeah i could see how it might like in a different movie it could be like really immersion shattering right like it could really take you out of the movie to have these like very deliberate transitions but for this because it's already so like exaggerated in that theatrical way right it still feels very in keeping with it when it makes these changes. I think this is a very unique movie in that the whole time that I'm watching it, I'm accepting everything they give me. Like I'm not putting a lot of thought into it. I'm just enjoying the movie. I'm just having fun. I, I would never taken out of it. Yeah. Which is kind of a rare thing in film to not be, especially for people like you and me who watch tons and tons of movies and, you know, not always cause they're good. and a lot of times we're watching the movie and the whole time you're in the back of your head you're like okay but what about this but what about this what about this and oh this is what they're doing and i feel like in this movie i'm just there for the ride i'm just enjoying it the whole time yeah yeah i I think that you're absolutely spot on this is when they're, they're like they're filming and we finally see shrek for the first time and as much as it is like we get like the creepy things before with the fingernails and the and the walk, God, he is just mesmerizingly creepy here. Where like the crew, you know, as part of the movie is like almost hypnotized by him, but we as an audience, I like genuinely feel like he is do- he has is putting on such an intensely charismatic and interesting performance here that it almost is genuinely mesmerizing. Willem Dafoe is really just giving a thousand percent to this. And I don't feel like that it looks like makeup. No, not at all. Very, very good. Yeah. (laughs) Very scary. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, uh, you know, the crew is both impressed and disturbed by this fucking lunatic who's just showed up in their midst. And, Albin confronts Murnau about Shrek being from a German theater company, and he asks Shrek where he found, or excuse me, he asks Murnau where Murnau found Shrek, uh, to which Murnau ominously replies, right in that hole, which is like, come on, man, you're trying to be creepy there. (laughs) 
that's a choice. He's not from the Reinhardt. <laughs> <laughs> so they complete the scene, and Wolf like had vanished basically, and he's found collapsed in the tunnel that they just filmed in, and where Shrek had vanished into. And they rush Wolf out as Shrek just like looms ominously in the window high above. <laughs> he's unnoticed. He's creepy as hell. Just a great. Great introduction to, to that character. I think the first time that I, I rewatched this movie, I kind of missed this. And the second time I rewatched it. So he has basically, Count Orlock, Nosferatu, been getting this guy for several nights, I guess. Yeah. I, Which, yeah, I think that the, the first night that now they showed up. Now to understand that he actually was in the in that night. So that's pretty scary to think about. And I believe in, a, in the Dracula novel, in the book, that's what happens with mina that dracula visits her several nights so i think that maybe be a little nod to that like we said they rushed him out and they do get him back to the inn this is the inn where also you know understanding that you know this is something that has been happening like it sort of lends a little more like credibility to the landlady being like these aren't these crucifixes aren't just for show oh there you go yeah and so when she sees him she's scared by the pale appearance and she mutters nosferatu (laughs) clutching her rosary you know it's classic old lady stuff as far as i'm concerned and that inn looks right out of the middle ages doesn't it oh yeah oh yeah (laughs) it's like stone walls big heavy wooden (laughs) tables it's it's like if i was picturing vampire scenery it's classic (laughs) vampire scenery (laughs) there you go And so Shrek, he comes down to this inn to film a dinner scene between himself and Gustav, and his appearance scares the poop out of the crew, to (laughs) Murnau's delight, as he introduces him. And they film the scene where Orlok is signing the real estate papers, and, like, this is, like, it's so fun for me. Like, it's him being, like, a fish out of water here, and he's, like, being a weirdo. Like, I just think that it's a really fun scene, but then they also balance it because there's like a moment of pathos for him where one of the things that this movie does really well, I think, is it doesn't make Count Orlock into like a caricature like he very easily could have been, I think. He he feels like a fleshed out character, and the way that they do that is in some of these scenes, they do like give you a little peek inside, a little uh, glimpse inside the armor. Um, and in this instance, you know, they're, they're trying to give him motivation for his performance and they ask him what he finds the most desirable, but unattainable to which he replies, the sun. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, it's just a nice scene. I love that one part of that scene too. When the makeup girl comes over and starts to powder his nose <laughs> and Murnau's like, no makeup. <laughs> I would, I would, would, I would like some makeup. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, just a little help. <laughs> yeah. you know? And he's like, no uh, makeup for you. <laughs> <laughs> so. Defoe, he creates like this weird empath- uh, empathy that I'm talking about as he like clutches the bottle of blood that we saw earlier and like laments the state of his life. And he's like, I used to drink from golden chalices. Would it surprise you to know that I was once considered quite beautiful? <laughs> <laughs> He's a down and out in Czechoslovakia. Yeah, he sure is. And, you know, he's he's framed against this, like, incredible backlit section of the castle. It's just a really spectacular moment. Like, I just think that it's it looks great. It's well-performed. 
top notch. Check. <laughs> Give them uh, the Academy Award. <laughs> Benicio, hand it over, man. But they were at the inn. They filmed a scene there. Now they're up at the castle filming a dinner scene. And Gustav is using terrible knife skills, cutting towards himself. No surprise to me when it slips and cuts his fingers, kids. Safety first. Well, Inverno also yells, finger! (laughs) Probably not helpful, I will admit. (laughs) And uh, Shrek goes baddie, if you will, at the sight of the blood. And he tries drinking from Gustav's wounds while Murnau shrieks about staying in character. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, the generator powering the lights fails. And when they're brought back up, Shrek is on top of Wolf. He gets pulled out. They're all freaking out about the Stanislavski lunatic. (laughs) And uh, Albin demands that filming end for the night. And Wolf is barely breathing. And so they rush the crew out. But they leave the cameras behind. And now that he's alone... Shrek is like like looking through the equipment and he finds footage of a sunrise, which fascinates him. You know, as we talked about, he just talked about how the thing that he finds most desirable but unattainable is the sun. You know, quick callback, but it's right there. It shows sort of the power of film. Right. He puts his hand in front of the projector and that's a really cool effect. Yeah. This is a good fucking movie, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Just pause it, the pod, and go watch it. Yeah, come back. This will be an even better episode. (laughs) Murnau takes Wolf to the hospital, and uh, he plans to bring in a new director of photography, saying that the financiers hate the script, and it won't survive any interruptions. And so he says, Albin, you got to handle this, man. You got to just keep it running smoothly. Do whatever it takes. And uh, he also takes Shrek aside to yell at him, and it's... It's funny to see uh, Shrek like try and convince him to let him eat people in the crew. <laughs> like, and, and find out who's disposable. Like, who who can I get away with? And they show that Wolf is still waiting in the car. Yeah. <laughs> so he's like a pit stop on the way to the hospital. Yeah, they're uh, bartering with a uh, with poor Wolf dying in the trunk over there. He's like, uh. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like. What, what did he say? We don't need the script writer. Right. Yeah, he's like, we don't need... Uh, what if we What if we didn't need the script writer, though? <laughs> and, and Murdo's like, hate to admit it, but we do need him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Take that, script writers. Well, I mean, did the script writer write that in reaction to how he's treated <laughs> wow. by directors? Shrek, basically, though, this, this scene is also important because he kind of shrugs off Murnau's threats saying that he doesn't even know how he could harm himself, much less how Murnau could hurt him. And there is sort of this, like, apathy that he clearly feels where he he doesn't seem, like, excited by life. He's just, he just exists. There's, like, this nebulous void that he exists in. And uh, it's sad. It's sad for you, Shrek. He's a bit of a sympathetic <laughs> character. Yeah. And so off Murnau goes, and he returns to Berlin to get the new photographer and to calm the financiers of the film about having to build a whole-ass ship at the castle (laughs) that Shrek won't sail. Albin and the scriptwriter, Henrik Galeen, are drinking outside, and they run into Orlok, and they jokingly ask him, like, some questions that he answers in character as a vampire, 
in quotes again, obviously, because <laughs> he is a vampire. Um, what he like, what he thought of Dracula, all that jazz. And Shrek, this is another one of these empathy moments where Shrek says that it made him sad, the book, because of what Dracula had been reduced to from his former glories and how the the loneliness of the count was sort of really reflected through the book. You know, trying to remember how to do the otherwise mundane chores that he hadn't needed to do in centuries because he had been so alone for so long. You know, it's just, I think, an interesting uh, subversion. And, uh, you know, so much of horror is perspective and, and being like, you know, if you look at someone with a little more sympathy, you can find, uh, you can, you can, you can find something to hang your hat on. I don't know. I don't know what I'm fucking saying. <laughs> He said he wouldn't even know how to pick good cheese, George. That's the biggest tragedy I ever damn heard, Liz. <laughs> and I'm like picturing him like down in the market, like, <laughs> looking through the cheese and the bread, like, oh my god, what the hell do I buy? <laughs> I don't even remember when I was born. How do you want me to remember what kind of cheese is good? <laughs> we might even be in totally different stuff than from back wow. when he was eating. Who even knows what <laughs> cheeses he was on? <laughs> right? Back when? During the Crusades? Man, crusade cheese. That's he, the good doesn't, shit. Doesn't he say that he knew Plato? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just casually hanging with Plato. He's like, oh, you read Plato. He's like, read it. <laughs> <laughs> Bitch, I knew him. Bitch, I knew him. <laughs> I was like, really? You knew Plato? <laughs> And uh, they like they ask him how he became a vampire, and Shrek is like, "It was a woman." <laughs> and uh, G- and Galeen was like, "Okay, now we're getting somewhere." But they're interrupted by Shrek snatching a bat out of the air and going to fucking town on it like Ozzy goddamn Osbourne. <laughs> his blood pouring down his face. <laughs> it was it's fucking wild, and and Grau and Galen, thanks to their drunkenness on schnapps, are impressed by what they assume is just talented acting. They're, they're, they think that's how committed he is. They just fucking chowed down on his bat. And he's passing the bottle around, too. Like, he drank out of the bottle and gave it back to them. I would have been like, goodbye. <laughs> After <Yeah. laughs> that incident. <laughs> There's you, bat blood all over the fucking... You can keep it. The schnapps. Well, he he does go to town on it. He drinks a lot of it before he staggers off drunkenly. And, um, you know, because he gets drunk, he attacks and he kills a crew member on the boat replica. And uh, the the faucet is open now. You know, he, he it's open season now that Murnau is gone and uh, and he's made this first kill. And so we do see a few more deaths. And... Murnau is still in Berlin dealing with the financiers, but his new DP has finally arrived. Uh, it's Fritz Arno Wagner. Carrie Elwes comes in fucking hot. He is like, is the camera loaded? Because so am I. <laughs> You're like, yeah, it's a, it's a pharmaceutical. Carrie. <laughs> the accent is out of control. It sure is. <laughs> Look, Carrie, I love you, man. Your accent work, not the best. We, can, a- we accept you. I'm a huge fan, love them, but right. It, it doesn't even stay consistent. No. <laughs> He's great in Psych as well, and in Saw, a movie that we talked about on this very podcast. And in both of those, his accent work, not very good. No. I think I'm noticing a trend. He just gets uh, by on his looks. Yeah. He, you're very dashing, <laughs> Carrie. Um, 
Um, but so the production hasn't moved to uh, Heligoland, which is, I looked this up so that people don't have to. It's a, a small archipelago of two islands about 29 miles off the German coast in the North Sea. So there you go. Always and, something uh, uh, pretty scary about being stuck on an island. Oh, absolutely there is. And uh, Greta finally arrives for her scenes. She's finally shown up after being still on the stage in uh, in Germany. Two dogs with her. <laughs> yeah, we respect it. You know, got to have those dogs with you. Loved it. And Shrek is basically fully in control of the set at this point. He's just killing the crew at will, despite Murnau's ineffectual protesting. Shrek even gets Murnau with a classic, we're not so different, you and I. I- <laughs> I'm like, have I heard that before? It's a classic line, <laughs> and he uses it to great effect here. Murnau is high off his ass on laudanum, which is basically just morphine, and he uh, admits Shrek's true nature to Albin and Fritz, that Shrek is, in fact, an actual vampire, and Murnau has struck a deal with him in order to create the most realistic vampire film possible. Again, very much calling back to that initial stance of getting rid of the artifice and... uh breaking down that barrier this is something that i have been thinking a lot about i was listening to uh, matt gorley and paul russ's podcast in uh with Voorhees we trust but the continuation of that it, the, i'm talking about the freddy one now okay. <laughs> and uh, they they were talking about like um engaging with stuff on a brechtian level and how some art is more concerned with its message than with sort of creating uh, the work of art that like draws people in, you know. Do you understand? What I'm, you, right. Am I making sense here? Okay. Yeah. And <laughs> and I think that Murnau is doing the opposite. I think that he is very much trying to get this sort of performance that is so true to life that it basically becomes a documentary despite the fact that it's uh, a fictional, fictional work. Right. Uh, (laughs) Well, yeah, definitely. I have pulled up here, you know, one of my favorite quotes from the movie when they're on the train over to Czechoslovakia, Murnau says our battle, our struggle is to create art. Our weapon is the moving picture because we have the moving picture. Our paintings will grow and recede. Our poetry will be shadows that lengthen and conceal. Our light will play across living faces that laugh and agonize, and our music will linger and finally overwhelm. Because it will have a context as certain as the grave, we are scientists engaged in the creation of memory, but our memory will neither fade or blur. And that is really means a lot to me. That sets up that he sees himself as a scientist who is, you know, creating a record of the fact that vampires existed. You know, he sees yeah. what he's doing as important work. So why would you compromise when you see that the greater good, even if you have to sacrifice lives, what is that in this context? He has sort of bought into his own hype a little bit where everyone refers to like, they're all like, oh, Murnau's a genius, Murnau's a genius. And he's like, you know what? I am. And and if I have to sacrifice these other people for the sake of my art and and creating this sort of lasting legacy, um, then so be it. Yeah, he's like a fanaticist, basically. Yeah. And they set that up pretty early in the film, that he will not let anything get in the way in between him and telling this story. Yeah, not I mean, he's dishonest with literally everyone. <laughs> so, <Right. laughs> 
There you go. <laughs> and uh, in return for Shrek's cooperation, this is the actual deal, was that he promised Greta to Shrek. Bum, bum, bum. <gasps> and <laughs> yeah, that I made that face too. And uh, the two realize, basically, um, Albin and uh, the scriptwriter, whose name I... Oh, here we go. Growl and, Gil- and Galeen. They both realize that they're trapped on this island, and they basically have no choice but to complete the film and to give Greta to the vampire, basically, if they want to survive. They agree to sacrifice. That. Yeah, fucked up. <laughs> they're just like, all right, I guess fuck Greta. <laughs> and um, just as they're about to begin filming their scene together, Greta becomes hysterical after noticing that Shrek does not cast a reflection. And... Continuing the ba- the pattern of fucked up behavior towards Greta, uh, the three men drug her <laughs> to calm her down with Murnau's laudanum. She's basically comatose, and uh, Shrek feeds on her, and so the drugs in her system also put him to sleep. I like that it's like an attack on Shrek, but not like in a way that I saw coming at all. I thought it was really interesting. Yeah, definitely. And he's like, he's like, I must feed on her now. There's this whole back and forth where he's like, I must feed on her. I must feed her. And Bruno's like, no, I need to get your dying scene first. (laughs) (laughs) And he's just like, he looks like, like, you know, like a drug addict waiting for his fix. Like he just has, he seems to know who she is earlier in the film when he sees that cameo. Yeah. In the scene with Gustav when it falls, signing the contract. So, I mean, I wonder, I'm like, does he go to the movies? Like, (laughs) Well, I think I think that he convinced that like when Murnau first showed up that he was like, this is my lead actress for this movie because he like showed up when he was looking for locations. It's like how he found him. I think that he says that. Right. And um, he was like, here's my lead actress. And Murnau and Shrek was like, oh, she is beautiful. (laughs) And (laughs) all right, well, be in my movie. <laughs> exactly. Now, I think, um, at one point, Murnau, I think when he was on the Laudum, he was telling them that when he was in college, he read books about the uh, family of vampires in Slovakia. Right. So that's where he was out there, and that's where he found Shrek living in an old monastery, which is when he must have shown him Greta's picture. There you go. <laughs> must be. It all comes together. <laughs> yeah. And they wait for the sun to rise, and they try and open the door to let in the sun, which would kill Shrek. But Shrek, too smart for them, he already discovered that dang mechanism, cut the chain, trapping the crew in the room with him. Very clever. He said, I'm not locked in here with you. You're locked in here with me. Rorschach who? This is, it's all Shrek, baby. And... (laughs) He turns on them. He basically does say that. And, <laughs> snap all of your necks. Right. He's like, all right, I'm going to kill you and then wait until dusk and get to stepping, baby. And uh, so Fritz and Albin try and kill him with the gun and the prop stake that they'd had for Greta and neither one attempt, neither attempt works. And so he friggin' he's snapping necks and cashing checks. <laughs> Murnau, on the other hand, this whole time, he just goes back to the camera and keeps on filming. He's gone off the deep end. He's in a state. Yeah. Completely ignores the death of his crew, the daggers that Shrek is glaring into him, and instead, he wants a second take. 
He's like, get back, get back there. Shrek is completely confused by Murnau's disregard for his safety. And so when Murnau is like, if it's not in frame, it doesn't exist. Shrek is just like, um, okay. And goes back to feed on Greta again. And uh, he kills her as Murnau keeps on filming. And um, this line does paraphrase a piece of advice that the real Murnau gave to Alfred Hitchcock as a young man when Hitchcock visited the Ufa Studios in Berlin. Uh, this is before he was the Hitchcock that we all know. But, you know, it's just a nice, nice little nod to that. And it's during this second take that the rest of the crew arrives and opens up the door, which lets in the sun. And it kills Shrek again with Murnau still recording. And uh, they hesitantly oblige Murnau's request for an end slate <laughs> in the movie. <laughs> he was the even, mo- like, shouting directions to the dead people. He's like, pick up that steak. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, uh, so, I mean, that further pushes forward that he's, like, off somewhere, another planet in ecstasy or something to get this yeah. finally on film the way he always wanted. Exactly. And the movie wraps up, and Murnau finally stops filming, cools a cucumber, and he says... I think we have it. 84 minutes, baby. Get in, get out. I fucking love it. Who says no to that? Incredible, great fucking movie. Not a dull moment. No, not a dull moment. It's It goes by so fast. As far as the reality of the actor's fate, I said that we would talk about this. Fritz Wagner and Alvin Grau lived into the 1950s and 1970s, respectively. Um, Greta Schroeder was not already famous when Nosferatu filmed, as sort of indicated in this movie, but she did go on to have a film career into the 50s, eventually dying in 1980. Uh, Murnau was actually the one who died the earliest of anybody in a car crash in 1931 in California, and supposedly he was uh, very sensitive and kind to his actors, which is obviously a very far cry from the dictator that we see in the movie. And uh, he was only 33 years old. Yeah, pretty shocking and uh, a bummer. You know, he made uh, Nosferatu. Who knows what else he had in the tank? Yeah. That's life, folks. <laughs> That's right. Now more than ever, you need to know to enjoy life. This podcast took a dark turn. But uh, you know what? Now we're at the part where we sum up why this is the best horror movie ever made. And uh, Liz, I'm going to let you start. Well, I think it's just fantastic because it's not just scary. It's an actual good movie. Uh, You know, as Roger Ebert, you and I all agree, it has no irony. You know, it has not a dull moment. You know, very good acting, a lot of really great monologues, a lot of very interesting scenes, but also quite scary throughout, you know, not in a way that you're going to like jump out of your seat or, or scream or anything, but the entire mood, you're uncomfortable the whole entire time. Yeah. And uh, because it's an alternate reality, even though it's based on somewhat history, we don't know what's going to happen at the end. Uh, we never are really sure. We're always uncomfortable you're on the edge of your seat the whole time. And, um, when it finally does end, you know, you're left feeling kind of like, oh, my God, you know, what did I just see? <laughs> you know, like, is, everyone's dead. The guy's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a little bit upsetting. Yeah, it's a little bleak, a little bit of a bleak end, to be sure. Yeah, to me, this is the best horror movie ever made because, look, it would be one thing if it was just an interesting story. And it would be one thing if it was just some really great performances. And it would still be yet another thing if it was just a gorgeous-looking movie. But this has all three of those things, and that's a whole fourth thing all on its own. And uh, I think that it's just really great. I think that like every everything is really working together 
to elevate each other. Each thing working well elevates the other. A rising tide lifts all boats, as they say. And I think that that um, is in full demonstration here. I think that the performances, like I said, are really spectacular. But Willem Dafoe in particular is just outrageously good in this movie. Um, he's funny. He's sympathetic. He's scary. He's creepy. Uh, I, he is just incredible in it. And like, I mean, 84 minutes. Everyone has 84 minutes to spare for this movie. When it's I see so a movie good. is two hours, I'm, you know, not excited. Get right out of town with that two hours <laughs> bullshit. Everything is like two hours, 2.20, 2.30 these days. <laughs> I just don't have the time. Who does? And that is why this is the best horror movie ever made. Liz, I want to thank you so much for coming on to do this. This was so much fun. And please, I mean... If you want to direct people to your Twitter, I know that you are a great Twitter presence, and uh, you can also just recommend something that you're enjoying these days. Well, if you want to find me on Twitter, I am at Eliza Muffins, and um, you know if I can suggest anything for you to check out, Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. I think you, you can go. buy the whole entire series on YouTube. Have you seen that one, George? I have not. I'll have to check ah, it out. Well, you better. <laughs> <laughs> As far as my plugs, you can find me on Twitter at LittleHorrorPHL. That username extends to basically everywhere. So if you want to find me and if I'm on there, that'll probably get you there. You can also go to the Patreon, which we mentioned earlier. We There is already a Spotlight episode, a whole dang episode about this guy marriage's other movie, Begotten. And it's a fucking crazy movie, guys. And it's on <laughs> and, YouTube, right? Yeah, it is, you know, which we talk about why that's the case. Spoiler alert, because nobody wanted to fucking distribute this weird ass movie. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, trust me when I say that you are going to want to check out me and Chris from Channel 83, another great podcast, breaking it down. And on top of that, there's all kinds of other great stuff on the Patreon, including choose your own adventure episodes. Every episode that we put out is ad free and early on there. You get it on Saturday so that you have the whole, whole weekend to watch the movie knowing what it is. And, uh, who, who doesn't, who doesn't love that? So check out the Patreon and, uh, rate and review the show. If you're enjoying it on iTunes, I feel like I'm rambling. Oh, also this is going to be a little bit of a exclusive first reveal but um i might be working with some guys on a podcast about the show psych which i fucking love that show so uh look forward to that um that's it thanks liz bye thank you george bye